Hello and welcome to the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson, the podcast designed to give you all the financial advice you'll ever need. This is episode 150, where in a moment we welcome another guest expert, this time Tom Stokes, an investment director at Aviva Investors for this week's topic, Ask the Fund Manager. That's in just a second, as I say, but please bear in mind, if you have a general financial query, you're in the right place because we have an enormous resource of free advice right here. And you can access it all simply through delving into our back catalogue of shows. Because in our programmes to date, we featured loads of stuff, mortgages, investing, wills and powers of attorney, and heaps more. You name it, we've done it pretty much. Last time we looked at the world of serviced accommodation with guest expert Lisa Shonneville of Block Property Management. Find the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts and you'll get us there. As I say, an enormous resource, all available for free. Find our previous shows after listening to this one and have a binge on what you need. While you're there, if you could rate and review us, for instance, you could tell us what we need to address to help you out and follow this show. And then that way, you'll get that episode when we record it next time. I'm John Ellis. I'm returning this week after a couple of episodes off, the star of our show, Phil Anderson. Hi, Phil. Hi, John. How are you? Good, thank you. Uh, welcome also to our guest for today, Tom Stokes, an investment director with Aviva Investors. Tom, before we get stuck into the subject of ask the fund manager and firing the questions at you, maybe you could begin by explaining both your own background to this point and, and your role with Aviva. Absolutely, yeah. Hi, John. Hi, Phil. Thanks for having me on. So, first of all, 150 episodes. Unbelievable. I know. I, I was that's just a, a proper. That. Yeah. What a what a milestone! That takes some serious serious effort, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, that's three years we've been doing the podcast. I was going to say it's like three years of podcasts and episode one hundred and fifty. So it's been great. I, I kind of believe that we're at that already. It just seems to have flown past. Could have gone either way, couldn't it, Phil? We started during COVID. We could have been like full on bakers of sourdough bread now. That's what everyone else was doing back during COVID. But no, we, we went with the podcast <laughs> instead. <laughs> it's <laughs> oh, good stuff so yeah I should probably start with who I am then the random person that comes on to episode 150 <laughs> so so I, I joined the industry in 2008 which was an interesting time to start to say the least I mean I actually kind of fell into the industry by accident I was supposed to be a history teacher and then kind of fell into the industry as sometimes people do so I kind of joined in 2008 but just before the financial crisis really started to kick in properly and then I just found it incredibly interesting. I just kind of stayed into it. And I'm kind of glad in retrospect that I didn't become a history teacher in the end. <laughs> so I'm, I'm investment director at Viva Investors. So Viva Investors is an asset manager of Viva, which is the big UK insurer. So you've probably heard of them. They might do your car insurance, they might do your home insurance. You might have a pension with them. But we're the asset manager. So our responsibility is to invest people's money. So their investments and pensions and try to grow that pot of money or protect that pot of money, whatever the objective is. But my, my specific role within that organization is to build and develop multi-asset solutions. So investing people's money into literally thousands upon thousands of different securities around the world, ranging from anything from someone like Microsoft, one of the biggest companies in the world, to something a bit more obscure like Chilean green bonds, for example. It could be, could be anything, but big kind of pots of money, diverse and we're looking after now collectively about 100 billion or just over 100 billion of assets uh, sterling. So pretty chunky pot. And there's a crazy stat, which is about one in four pensions in the UK are with Aviva. So the chances are anyone that's listening at some point, either currently or in the past, have probably been in, had a hand in running your pension money. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. And and not only that, setting up our pension, you could also tell us about the Battle of Hastings and keep us entertained with your, your former background <laughs> as an almost history teacher. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. As a general breakdown of some of the things that we're hoping to cover today, Phil's mentioned to be prior to recording the show, we're going to try and fit in discussion on the likes of the investment markets, inflation, artificial intelligence, and China. So if we just pick one and, and sort of dive in, how about inflation first? And Phil's obviously the expert in this show, Tom. I'm just here to ask daft questions as and when I see fit, simply because I'm not remotely qualified to be in this specialist world. So I'll begin by asking you this one. When it comes to things like inflation, do you ever get you know, exasperated by measures governments take in approaching things like this? Is there anything you or your colleagues would be doing differently to try and control it? Or are they broadly tackling things along the right lines? Would you would you like to give them a collective shake sometimes? So, yes. <laughs> and the, uh, that's the short answer. So I'll give you more information. But I mean, for full disclosure, I'm a person that has a tracker mortgage. So every time... <laughs> the Bank of England starts to increase interest rates, which they have done significantly recently. Yeah. I feel that pain in my pocket. And I don't see, annoyingly, the my interest in my bank account going up at the same rate. So it's painful. So, yeah, you do want to shake them sometimes. And I, but I think it's probably important to separate government from central banks. So central banks in the UK being the Bank of England or the US Fed. So they're kind of separate. And I feel like when you look at central banks... They haven't really done a bad job, and I should probably be careful because we have people used to work at the Bank of England that work currently with us now. They haven't done a terrible job, but it's inflation is incredibly tricky. So the rising cost of goods and services, it's a really complex and nuanced subject. And the tools available to central bankers are pretty blunt. So central bankers, to try and get ahead of inflation, their main kind of tool in the, in the toolkit is to put up interest rates, which they've done quite a lot recently. I mean, we're at five percent currently. We might get to five and a quarter tomorrow, and that's gone up from zero point two five percent at the beginning of twenty twenty two. So it's massively gone up, and that's how they try to deal with inflation. But if you think of that tool, it's like a dentist with a hammer. Like they're gonna get you, they're gonna get you poorly too, but you're probably gonna lose a few more teeth in the process. Mm. And what I mean by that is, interest rate means that interest higher interest rates slows the economy down slows inflation down because people have less money because they've got more mortgage payments to pay or they've got more credit card bills to pay they're not going out spending as much and then the economy starts to slow down a bit similarly with businesses as well the, the cost of borrowing slows them down and it, and it works and it seems to have worked but it is a blunt instrument and you, you just feel the pain you, you have this balancing up between bringing inflation down but not trying to knacker the economy at the same time i know Governments, though. Yeah, different story in governments. Sorry, yeah, go on, Phil. No, I was just going to say, the, one of the questions I was going to ask was just how you thought inflation might be going forward. I know it came down a little bit more than they expected the last time, but do, do you see that trend continuing, Tom? I know in, in Europe it's been coming down, and um, and I would hope with the interest rate rises it would. I mean, that we are starting to see that impact now, but just to see how, how do you think inflation will go going forward? The good news seems like it's peaked and it's and it, and we're moving from an inflation period to what we'd call now disinflation. So the price of things, goods and services are still going up, but it's the rate at which they're going up is starting to get slower. So if you think of in the UK, back in October last year, inflation peaked about 11.1%. And then in June, it's kind of fallen just under 8%. So things are still going up by about 8%, but just not as much as they were earlier in the uh, as they were last year. And it almost felt like in June when that 
inflation print came out that there was this collective sigh of relief that central bank is putting up interest rates and actually starting to work which means then people think maybe interest rates don't have to go up as much as maybe they had to and, it, and it's not just the uk so if you think about the us inflation peaked last year about 9.1 percent they're they're actually now about three percent in the eurozone they went from about seven percent last year now down to about five and a half percent so it seems like it's peaked and it's coming down but it's still inflation is still way higher than central bankers would probably like it to be so most central banks would like it to hover around that this a two percent figure which is their kind of goldilocks just right level not too hot but not disinflation which is also a problem or deflation which is also a problem so yeah i think that to answer your question inflation seems to have peaked it's still quite a lot higher than it's been in the last 10 20 years and I guess the, from here, we we kind of think that inflation won't ever really fall back to the really low levels it's been. So it's been since the global financial crisis, inflation has been really low. Um, and we think now it probably will settle around the 2% figure over the next sort of few years, uh, which is higher than it's been for a while. Yeah. What, what kind of impact does that have? Like high inflation, that would have quite an impact on people's investment and some pensions, would it? Yeah. The, it, there's been a lot of pain felt already, really. So if you think about 2022, that was really when there was a period of time where people, a couple of years ago, people thought inflation was transitory. It's going to dip away. It's just an overhang from some of the stuff that happened during COVID-19. Then you had the nutter in Russia invading Ukraine and it sparked an energy crisis, which at that kind of point, central banks kind of gave up on the idea that inflation was going to be transitory and it's going to be here for longer. And that set up the chain of events where central bankers started to increase interest rates, which was really what broke the back of the market. So 2022 was just a combination of some of the worst equity and bond performances since the early 1970s. It was, pre- it was pretty bad. I mean, and particularly for, for bonds, people that are what would normally be considered lower risk investments are the ones that actually suffered the most because bonds are more sensitive to interest rate increases than perhaps the equity markets to put into context. Global bond markets were down about 13%. There's only actually been over two of a year since 1990 where bond markets were negative. And the the, what, the second worst loss was only 2.5%. So it's, it was an incredibly unique market environment. And a lot of people have felt the pain. It sounds, sounds and it's kind of the market reset. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like the term Goldilocks level, by the way. I'm going to take that and use that somewhere else. The, the, the just right moment. You spoke about the central banks having this sort of blunt instrument when it comes to trying to control inflation, which makes me wonder with everything else coming down, why is the UK taking longer to see inflation coming down than the other countries? Now, this is where we could get into a bit of politics. So we, I mentioned central bankers earlier that they're. They could have done what they can do, which is increase interest rates. The governments, the UK government, I mean, if we cast our minds back to the mini budget in October last year, was just disastrous. Mm. I mean, it was it was pulling in the opposite direction of what the, the aim was, was to pull bring inflation down. And they were kind of saying, tax, cut, tax cuts for everyone. Fantastic. And then obviously that's inflationary. So that was probably part of the problem of a higher inflation problem, uh, of a, not a higher inflation problem, but part of the problem with governments kind of dodgy policies mixed with other policies with central bankers. But UK has been a bit unique and not just because of government. So one of the reasons would be the drivers behind inflation globally would be things like a shortage of workers, which is one of the main reasons in the US why their inflation has been going up. Energy crisis driven by Russia invading Ukraine, which is kind of what's plaguing Europe and the UK. The UK has been in a 
an unfortunate position where it's had that double hit, where it's had to deal with both of those problems at the same time, whereas the other two areas haven't really had to deal with that to the same extent simultaneously. So that's one reason. Another reason, which is a bit more controversial, would be Brexit. So Brexit has caused a few inflationary pressures as well. So, for example, if you think about a labour shortage, part of the labour shortage is kind of driven by some of the changes in Brexit, where you have less people coming over the Eurozone to do some jobs. And then there's also little little tiny weird things like the the cost of importing, there's food inflation. So, for example, there are now some extra border crosses that you would, wouldn't have to incur before, and that kind of adds about a little bit extra onto food inflation. So it's a combination of factors. So dealing with the same problems as Europe and the US, but all of it together, and then a few sort of little Brexit bits as well. But it's probably not a good idea to go down the Brexit hole because uh, we get lost <laughs> there. They put interest rates up to try and get inflation back to, to where they want it to be. But do you, do you think there'll be many more rises with interest rates or do you think that's probably the end of this sort of cycle of, of rate rises now, Tom? Oh, God, I hope so. I'm sick of getting letters from my bank telling me that my mortgage <laughs> payments have kind of... I, I, think, I, I think we're getting to the point near, near now where it's getting to the, the, the end, which is the good news. I mean... I mean, I was we're saying before we started recording that I just got back from holiday. Before I went on holiday, the markets are expecting the Bank of England to increase interest rates to 6.25%. I got back a couple of weeks later, and that forecast is now back down to about 5.75%, which is better. But I think there will be some more increase. So that would mean that does imply there would be more interest rate increases. So we're currently at 5%. Tomorrow, we're probably going to get another quarter. So that's the 3rd of August, depending on when you're listening to this. So we'll probably be at five in the quarter from tomorrow, which means we've got another 50 bips to go if the markets are right. We're in the, as a house and we've investors, we're in the mindset it's probably, we're kind of more in line with the market now. We've kind of been consistent with the market. The market sometimes is over egg the pudding or under egg the pudding. We kind of think. 5.75 is probably where it'll yeah. where it'll end up. The Fed, the Fed as well, and the and the ECB. I mean, they they still have some hikes to go as well. But yeah, the interest rates where they are now is like twenty in the US. The the highest they've been in twenty two years, which is insane. Wow. Yeah, we just haven't had to contend with high interest rates for most people's sort of professional career. They haven't had to deal with inflationary or high interest rate environments. Yeah. When you're looking for opportunities in the, the markets, Tom, is there certain businesses that benefit from high inflation? I know in like the cost of living crisis, we, we one of my clients owns a company that does car parts. And, and I know they do very well in, in times that are tough because people stop buying new cars, they keep their old car longer, and the parts, they, they tend to do really well because people are buying more more car parts. But when inflation's high, is there some types of businesses that, that can sometimes benefit from that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, a, a good example would be what we'd call discretionary versus staples. So staples being the things that you don't you don't go without. So just because things get harder, you're probably still going to buy toothpaste unless if you don't want any friends anymore. <laughs> and then and then a, a, a discretionary spend would be something like a, a car or something where you could probably go, you know what, I can drive around in my clapped banger for a little bit longer. It's not a problem. So businesses that are invested in more stables tend to kind of fare a bit better, whereas something that's more discretionary, where people are kind of less inclined, tend to do worse. I mean, one of the 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 themes we had in our portfolios, uh, which is no longer there now, but we, we kind of booked 
we took the profit, but it was something like US healthcare. So healthcare companies, there's a number of reasons, but one of those are kind of more defensive and, and uh, perform better during that more inflationary period than let's say something else that's a bit more discretionary. Yeah. Okay, let, let's take a look at AI now, um, artificial intelligence. From the very moment we've been talking about this in a sort of broader sense in the in the real world, the part of me is wanting to shout from the rooftops, didn't you ever watch a single futuristic movie in the 80s? Because we just seem to plough on. And I think we're, we're at a crossroads now where your average show can see all the benefits of AI, but also all the fears and how, for instance, AI may prove detrimental to their ability to earn an income by rendering them redundant. And still... We've seen this massive surge in the tech market. What's causing all that, Tom? Yep, it's kind of it's become aware. <laughs> it, I, I, it's it's insane. It's the I, I'm really interested in AI. Uh, we've been doing quite a bit of research into it, but it's become hard to ignore. It's as interesting as it is disruptive, which makes it kind of exciting and scary at the same time. A bit like a Terminator film. Yeah. The, the thing behind AI is that. There is this belief that it's going to be drive more productivity, and it's going to there's products and services that people will want that will be linked to AI, and there's become a lot of exuberance if you think about the U.S. equity market, the tech market, sorry, the U.S. tech market, which we think about as the Nasdaq, it's up about forty four percent this year, and that's primarily driven by this sort of exuberance, excitement about what AI might mean for those companies. You don't sound convinced, though. Well. So this is a really good quote, not mine, unfortunately, but there's a, this chap who I've never heard of before until I started doing some research, but this guy called Ray Amara, I don't know if you guys have heard of him, but he's basically this sort of futuristic American scientist from, I think, the 60s. And he said, we tend to un- overestimate the effects of technology in the short run and underestimate in the long run. And I kind of feel like that. I feel like there's maybe t- a little bit too much excitement if you mention AI in your earnings reports and suddenly the share price goes up. And maybe not all, all of that is justified, but longer term, I think there's going to be huge impacts on, on on AI. I mean, I don't know if you guys have been on to ChatGPT. Have you used oh, it? Phil, Phil, Phil's a past master at ChatGPT. Yeah, we we did a podcast. We, we did one podcast episode and it was, can ChatGPT give you financial advice? And it was scary. For, for me, as somebody who owns a financial <laughs> advice business, I was like, where's this? Is? I mean, it, it's great because you can embrace the technology and and I think it's such an exciting time at the moment. And and Chat GPT is it, such a kind of hot topic just now. And I know so far this year, I think um, it's been the best start to a year for technology stocks in in twenty five years. And and I was going to ask you, Tom, it's like how how do you see investments in tech tech firms going over the next couple of years? Yeah, I mean. Up, up so far 44% this year, which is astonishing. I mean, it's really kind of driven the, the positive markets this year in equities. Our view isn't a particularly strong one, I'm afraid. It's not, I can't, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, we, we love tech, we're buying loads of it, or, or we hate it, we're selling it. We're, we don't have a specific theme in the portfolios, but we do have, because we run investments on a more global basis, it means naturally we have a bit more in the US equity market, which naturally has a bit more in US tech because about a third of the US equity market is actually tech. So you kind of pick it up by default anyway. There's definitely been this sort of gift horse of of uh, AI that's kind of pushed prices. From here, it depends on... the, the, the we, You kind of want it to kind of broaden out to be more than just because of AI. For yeah. example, and, 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 and some of the, the companies are sort of making changes. So it's not just AI. A lot of these companies are 
for the first time starting to really think about managing costs. I mean, you've seen the, the, the sacked lots of people. So I've got a couple of friends that work in tech and they survive, but there was Salesforce. One friend works in Salesforce. About 20, 25% of the staff got cut and we were in holiday at the time and he was just getting phone calls from saying, yep, that team's gone. That team's gone. Just people in their mass has been sacked. So they're trying to manage costs and change the way they're in the businesses. So tech in the past has been a lot of, not all of the tech companies, but a lot of them have all been about growth at all costs, borrowing lots of money, buying other companies, merging and making acquisitions. And now that interest rates are higher, the mindset's changed a bit, which is actually let's move from being like this adolescent company of pure growth and move into a more mature adult company where we try and think about cutting costs and things. I, I remember the dot-com kind of bubble and, and how it sort of went, but do you think there's a chance we may see that? Or do you think because they're being maybe a bit more prudent now, that probably avoid that, Tom? I think it's different to the dot-com bubble. I mean, the dot-com bubble seems to be just built on sand and just pure pure hope that and excitement. Whereas if you think about the tech companies now, that like I said, they're one of some of the biggest companies in the world. So they make up a third of the, the US equity market. So they're, they're massive. But they're massive for some of the right reasons. They make loads and loads of money. So if you think about the top 10 most profitable businesses in the world, about six of them are tech companies. So they, they make a, a ton of cash. And some of those dot-com, some of the people that were in the dot-com bubble have survived. And there's some of the big companies. I said Microsoft and Amazon, they were around at the dot-com bubble and they, they weathered the storm and they, they come at the grand pet.com, pets.com when uh, Ask Jeeves didn't fare so well. I don't think it's fair to say there's like a dot-com bubble kind of thing. I think these companies are a bit more mature now than they were and they're making a lot of money. Yeah. In the dot-com bubble, it was all hope and no companies that weren't even making any money at all. Who do you think the, uh, the standout winners are then in the tech sector? So the, as a sector, pretty much everyone's in pretty well. But I mean, if you think about it, a few that have quite linked, have good, strong links to AI. So Microsoft is a good one. So they were sort of an investor into ChatGPT and they're incorporating it into their search engine Bing, which could put a lot of pressure on Google. So everyone kind of uses Google. But if you can go on Bing and it's got AI where you type in something and it actually gives you the answer that you want rather than Google where you have to sort of keep on typing in different things and trying to find the right website. So you, it, it, that could be, uh, they, they've their share price has gone up partly on the, that link to ChatGPT. But you think of, if, if I had to pick one, just one company that seems to benefit the most, I would say NVIDIA. And NVIDIA is not really a household name that people think about in the same way as Apple or Microsoft, but these are basically a chip maker that has become this sort of tech darling. They 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 in June reached their one trillion US dollar market cap. So they're now a one trillion market cap company. That's there's only about thirteen companies or sorry about six companies that have that kind of size of, of market. But yeah, they they make basically like graphics cards. So if you're like a gamer, you'll probably be using some Nvidia componentry. And now video games are getting more sophisticated and they're building them to try and incorporate AI into video games. So when you're speaking to an NPC, non-playing character in gaming terms, then you're going to get a more intelligent character. So if you're running around shooting someone, they're not going to sort of run to the walls and act like an idiot. They'll be AI and they'll be quite clever and you can interact with them better. But that needs loads of processing power to deliver, which is where NVIDIA steps in with their chips which can help power that. So if you think about AI has been a goldmine, NVIDIA are there with like the shovels 
handing out the shovels <laughs> and and they're they're basically they, they've done very well and are very well at communicating that to the market as well that they are linking in and riding on the mm. wave of ai mm. and their share price has gone up massively because of it yeah was it ray amaro was that the name of the uh the person you quoted earlier yes ray amaro sorry. So, yeah, Roy, so, Amara, so, Roy. Yeah, so so he said we overestimate in the short term, underestimate in the longer term when it comes to things like yeah. this. AI. Do you think then, using his you know term at your back there, will it bring long term product productivity gains for businesses? Do you think? I can't see how he wouldn't really. I mean, and 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 you kind of mentioned at the beginning that it, people get scared because it means job losses and stuff, which it probably will, but hopefully opens up new avenues. So if you're I'm thinking about my partner today. She's been on the trying to sort out the Wi-Fi at home, and she's been on the phone for ages and been hung up on about two, two three times. And she's about to lose her patience now. You could have ChatGPT, sort of generative AI that could just answer those questions and deal with it, and that would mean you, the custom consumer, would get a bit of a better outcome. The business would then be able to cut costs because it's much cheaper to have an AI system than a team of people answering questions. But obviously the casualties would be the people in the in the, the contact centers and things. But hopefully new avenues and new jobs kind of open up. But I definitely think there will be long-term productivity gains. I mean, for one, less labor potentially needed, which means some jobs can be replaced. It's not mm-hmm. good for the people of those jobs, but it, it will be good from an economic perspective. People that are using AI can co-opt it into the way they work. So I actually use ChatGPT maybe once a day now, a part of my sort of stuff. And we've kind of got projects at the moment, you know, we've investors thinking about how we can use AI to help kind of sift through all the information we have to deal with and find better ways of using it, not to outsource the decision-making because it'll be, but combining sort of machine and human to get a better outcome. And then it's kind of good for the consumer. So if you think about how it can just cut and slice free information for you, I, I kind of used it actually recently. I had to buy, because I've I, I, I kind of moved recently, I had to buy a washing machine. And it, if you kind of go through queries and stuff, it's really hard to work out what's the difference between one machine versus another and one's 200 quid more than the other. And you're like, why, why is that 200 quid more? I can't work out what it is. And I pumped in the, the model codes into ChatGPT and it just told me, <laughs> it just saved me uh, 200 quid because it basically turned out one was Wi-Fi powered. And I'm like, I don't need Wi-Fi. I don't need a Wi-Fi capability in my washing machine. So I saved 200 quid. So I think that the ability to for consumers to get a better outcome, like typing in, what's the, where can I get this service and who's going to provide this service mm, at yeah. the best cost? I think that will help. Don't you want uh, an email from your outcome. washing machine when it tells you that it's it's finally on the spin cycle and you can come down to it? <laughs> it's so weird. I don't know who's buying these <laughs> Wi-Fi machines or who's involved in product development in, in Bosch or whatever. But yeah, it seems like every washing machine now is all Wi-Fi. So yeah. I can put a wash on when I'm out and about, but you still need to load the damn things. So I'm not sure, <laughs> well, exactly, <laughs> I'm not sure how it works. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's just nuts the way things are going. Yesterday I was on LinkedIn and one, one of the girls in our office I know she had a new profile picture. And I, I said to her, you saw who took the, the photos? Because usually the firm would pay for, for headshots. And she turned around and she said, oh, that's not a real photo. I got, um, there was an app that did that for me. It's an AI kind of photo. And she started showing me all these things. And the app, whatever, I, I didn't know the name of it, but she said, she goes, oh, I've got pictures showing me here is pregnant. I've got pictures like this. And I was just like, this is crazy. And she did say, she's like, some of them don't look all that real. But I mean, the, the profile picture that she's got on, on there, maybe just a, a few pounds less than, than what she is 
like weight wise, but I was like, it just looked pretty, pretty real, but it's just it's scary stuff. And I, I was going to kind of try to almost moving on, Tom. One of the things I wanted to, to sort of touch on today was, was China. And if we could, now I know this year, was meant to be the year that China is the, the second largest economy in the world. And th- this was meant to be the year that it would rebound after emerging from its strict zero COVID policy, but that's not been the case. And I, I was just going to see if if you kind of could say as why you think the growth in China has probably been far slower than expected. Yeah, it's one of those things where periodically people get interested in China. Or it's always there in the periphery because it is the second world's the, the the world's second largest economy by some margin. So the third largest economy is Japan, but it, but China is still three times larger than Japan. So it's massive. So it's quite a big big yeah. gulf between second to third position. We're now sixth position in the UK. <laughs> we were fifth, but China, uh, India has overtaken us. So we're we're sixth now in the in the rankings. Yes. Yeah, so China has had extraordinary growth in the past. So you've kind of seen six percent growth year on year. If you kind of go rewind the clock back to the turn of the millennium, the economy was worth about 1.2 trillion. It's now 18 trillion. So it's huge, huge growth. If you compare it to the US, so that's like tenfold growth. If you compare it to the US, it's doubled. So it's massive, massive growth. So extremely, extreme success story historically. But yeah, now it's changing. It's 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 starting to slow. So you, China had really, really strict a zero a zero COVID policy in China, which sort of basically closed the economy down. And it only really lasted, it only kind of ended about seven, eight months ago. And it was really strict. I mean, to the point where there were literally drones flying through the cities, making sure people stayed indoors. I mean, we complain in the UK, but compared to to what was going on in China, it was much, much stricter. But when it reopened, people thought, great, now that that's over, that's the sign to the history books, the economy is going to reopen and the Chinese economy is just going to start firing on all signals again we're going to get that six percent growth and that just hasn't happened and there's a number of there's a plethora of reasons if you were just to simply google or chat gpt maybe the reasons for china growth slowing down you're going to get lots and lots of reasons but if i was to distill it down to some of the key points one would be there's a lot of high levels of debt which is is problematic which is starting to become a burden especially when growth is, and especially when it's becoming deflationary. So you've got lots of debt and the actual, there's a deflationary environment. That's like the two worst things that can kind of happen. So to think about debt, there's a property market, which has out, had a played an outsized role in the growth in, in China. So if you think about the UK, about 7% of our economic activities through the property market in the, in China, it's been about 20 to 25%. And, and we're, Getting to the point now in China where there are infrastructure like airports been built that aren't being used. There are apartment blocks that have been built that aren't being used because the demand is driven up. But it's all this debt and leverage things. So you're kind of building things, you're borrowing to pay, and then you get to the point where, well, I can't let this property out anymore because no one wants it, which is a problem, obviously. So that's one, high levels of debt coupled with deflation. The second one would be you've got the demographics so there's the, the workforce is not as young as it used to be. You starting to see the impacts of things like the, the controversial one-child policy. So you're kind of having that kind of thing coming coming into play as well. So it's a few things. Uh, trade, people, uh, the exports are lower, people are buying less, probably because economies are slowing down in developed markets. So it's, it's, a, it's just a plethora of different things conspiring against China at the moment. 
still 2022 like still grew by about three percent so it's not it's still kind of growing but it's just not the six five six percent that the uh, chinese government would probably like it to be it makes me wonder tom because whenever we talk about uk debt or whatever you know there's always oh yeah we we owe this and, and that's that's operated by china so we're, we're effectively paying money to china i'm wondering if china's in so much debt who on earth do they owe money to it's kind of on their balance sheets yeah i mean it's it's kind of the system to my knowledge and obviously these things get incredibly complex but i, I kind of feel like the financial system in the uk is quite separate from the financial system <laughs> right, okay. in china fortunately uh, the whole and, and actually we we kind of had a theme on banks thinking about when you had the banking crisis at the beginning of this year which was kind of driven by interest rates going up you kind of had and the the positive side china not having that problem because the banks right. are kind of separate and they weren't kind of involved with that but yeah and given i mean you said despite everything that's going on they still had a three percent increase and before that that sort of huge increases from from the millennium what are they i mean they obviously know how to get it right so what are they doing in china to get the economy moving again what sort of steps are they taking they're trying to so in a world where most places in the world are increasing interest rates they're actually starting to decrease interest rates to try and stimulate their economy so they're they're like a this oddball outcasts of the global economy where most people are increasing interest rates where they're decreasing because the problems they're facing are different to the problems we're facing here. They're also trying to get their consumer, the people in, in China to start investing and, and buying again for a few different policies. Because the other kind of quirk of China is that most of the time, economic activity is driven by consumers. So people like us free here going out and spending. Whereas in in China is actually uh, about 40%, so quite a lot lower because you kind of got the property market and stuff that's kind of make, making the difference. So they're trying to kind of get the consumer spending again, build that consumer confidence again and de- decreasing interest rates to give more money to people that are, to, given that people are highly debt leveraged, a lot of borrowing is easier when your interest rates are a bit lower. But the, the criticism though is that people are kind of saying, they need to do a bit more of a bazooka approach rather than this sort of potato gun where they're kind of dipping in a bit with a bit of stimulus. But so far, the markets perceive that as not enough to really refire the economy up to the same level. And now people are saying, well, maybe the target of 5.5% GDP growth in China is probably not re- realistic. Maybe it's going to be lower single digits. So yeah, the, the, it's, it's kind of growing, but maybe not. Maybe we've seen the the golden years of growth, and it'll just start to become a bit more subdued. How, how does things, like what's going on in China, how does that impact us here, Tom? I guess there's that, the old adage of when you think of the US, the largest economy in the world, and we always used to say, well, if, if they catch, if they sneeze, everyone catches a cold. And I, I think there is some element of truth for that to China and the rest of the world. But I think the financial systems are quite separate, the banking systems. So if there was like a 2008 type of banking crisis in China, I'm not sure how much that would filter through into into the UK. Yeah, but it it seems to be more linked to people that China is a huge huge market, and there's lots of people that export to China, lots of companies that export to China. So in the UK, for for example, we we export quite a lot of cars to them. Funnily enough, it's actually about 15% of our cars that we export go to China. Yeah, so if they're economy starts to slow down and people don't want to buy cars anymore, then that would have an impact to that particular industry. We export precious metals to them as well and other sort of luxury items. So it would kind of impact that kind of area. And you might start to see sort of 
impacting our growth somewhat to, to the yeah. extent at which that impacts the, our economy is hard to say it depends on how bad it is for them versus yeah but you kind of want a strong china and a strong us because they are kind of linchpins in the global system so you kind of want that, them to be doing well for everyone else to be doing well aviva investors have got a range of multi-asset core funds can I tell us how these have been performing recently and maybe what's been doing well in the portfolios and maybe what hasn't been doing quite so well? Yeah, sure. So um, so we run a, a range of different multi-asset funds. So multi-asset fund core, that's our sort of low-cost solution. We also have a range that we're managing for 13 years this year, which has a more active approach. And the markets, although we can be talking about all sorts of things about inflation, interest rates going up and China problems. Markets actually generally perform fairly well, which is good for the funds that we manage. So you think about our sort of medium risk fund, so the the kind of the funds that most people invest into, middle of the road. They delivered about a six percent return over the past the past year, yeah, which is pretty decent, all things considered. And that's sort of net of fee, so that's kind of the experience you get actually investing, and and the driving force. Well, this year really has been equity markets have been doing relatively well. A lot of that has been driven by AI and the US tech sector. Hopefully, that'll start broadening out to other sectors. And then the bond markets haven't been performing as badly as they were in 2022, where things were pretty bad for bonds. So it's been a bit better. So yeah, we can benefit from from yeah. those market trends. But but you kind of outlook for markets and and sort of positioning with it, the multi asset funds. So going forward as well, Tom. Yeah. So the 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 key theme. So the, there's lots of themes, obviously, but the key thing for us that we're looking at still, and it's still the dominant factor that impacts markets on a day by day basis, is inflation. Without a shadow of a doubt, it's inflation, and the the trade off between tackling the inflation problem that seems to be going fairly well at the moment versus central bankers increasing interest rates to kind of control the inflation problem whilst not letting the the wheels fall off the economy, that tightrope act that the central bankers are trying to do. And so far, it seems to be going so, you know, okay. The most economies in developed markets, UK, US, Europe, have been fairly resilient. So that's kind of where we are now. And because of that, we're a little bit overweight equities. So these are the assets where you should expect the, the capital growth to come from. But we're also simultaneously overweight government bonds, which is almost like a hedge. So they're things that should protect you. Yeah. And to 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 make those positions, we've been using cash. So whenever we run money, we always keep a bit of cash separate, and then we can utilize that during the year to see where we want to invest. So the the those two trade ideas sort of offset one another. You take risk and potential for growth on one side, and then you're offsetting the risk on the other side. Because we mentioned about interest rates going up, which is a bad thing for bond bond values go down. But you've kind of had a lot of the pain and it's been reset. So now from this point forward, if you're buying a bond, you're getting an interest rate much, much higher than you would have got in years gone by. So the, their effectiveness within a portfolio is, is, is better. So yeah, so we're, we're overweight equities, overweight government bonds offset that risk. And we've just used a bit of cash to to, to, to pay for that, basically. Tom, thank you so much for being a guest on our 150th show. Another little milestone for us. Glad you could be a part of it. And, and as I always do, Phil, on your podcast, we, we take a look at how our subject matters affected your own life, uh, both professionally and personally. So what do you want to focus on from today's show, Ask the Fund Manager? 
I, I've really enjoyed the, the show today. It's been great chatting to, to Tom and thanks so much for, for coming on to the, the podcast, Tom. It's been a pleasure to have you on. And I know at the minute there's a lot going on in the world and I know there's been a lot of doom and gloom, but I do think it's a very interesting time and, and I'm also really quite excited with, with things at the moment. But thanks so much for, for coming on, Tom. It's been great chatting to you today. No, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, also in the podcast, a regular bit we delve into is your quote of the week, Phil. Um, being a fan as you are of influential and motivational sayings and quotes, what do you have for this week and our topic of Ask the Fund Manager? Yeah, I think think Tom will like this quote. It's a, a Warren Buffett quote. If you have a great manager, you want to pay him very well. <laughs> and now, yeah, I like that one. Yeah, <laughs> to, funnily enough, yeah. Now, Phil is uh, is really keen on trying to help you with your query. So, if ever you want to email a question to us, please do. And as always, we can ask them anonymously if you prefer. Let's get on to this week's contact details in just a second. I'll give it to you after these. This first one is from Irene and Glenn Rothers, who says, "Hi, Phil. My electricity provider recently reduced my monthly direct debit. The first time this has happened for as long as I can remember. And on my statement, I'm in the black to the tune of about four hundred pounds." At a time when I could use that money elsewhere, should I ask them for a rebate? I think it's great news that, that you've got a positive balance. I mean, that's that's excellent. But I would say is before asking for a rebate, I, I would check to make sure that the figures they're using are accurate and not an estimate, because I have seen that in the past. We, we actually just got stung with quite a big electricity bill at one of our offices because they've been using estimated sort of bills rather than actual ones. So I would... Certainly double check that. It's also worth remembering as well that your usage at this time of year is likely to be a lot less than the cold and dark winter months that are probably lying in wait for us over the, the next wee while. So that might be a good idea to stay in credit to maybe cover anything there. That's that's what I would kind of say for, for that one. Okay. Next up, here's one from Brian and Broder who asked, Hi, Phil, I know inflation came down recently, almost surprisingly. Do you think this was a blip? or a start of a bigger trend? And if so, when can we expect to see price increases in shops slowing down and maybe even our mortgage repayments dropping? Wow, that's a that's a big catch-all question. Uh, Scoot, we've covered quite a lot of that stuff just going yeah. through the, the show today. The, the Consumer Prices Index, it was 7.9% in the year of June of this year. What, what people have always to remember is that this still means that prices are rising. Sometimes you hear, oh, inflation's came down, and, and sometimes people think, oh, prices have came down, but that's not the, the case. So that, that's an important thing to, to remember. But I know a lot's been done to try and curb inflation, and hopefully the, the impact of the interest rate rises will, will help us get back to a more kind of normal level soon. I don't know if Tom would have anything else to, to kind of add to that question at all. We've probably covered quite a lot of going through the show, I would say. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's one of the things I cover closely because I'm in the, the track the, the track of mortgage costs and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, think, I, I think things will just get easier from here. Yeah. That's my kind of view. That Absolutely. inflation has been coming down. Interest rates have been going up, but they should start to come back down in, in 2024, yeah. which will make things easier. So. That was the, the sort of broken census that I uh, picked up this morning in the news was that possibly, you know, the, the turn of the year is, is the time to start looking at things coming back down again. They, I think one, one advantage with your, your tracker mortgage, Tom, is at least you're just gradually getting used to the, the rate rises. I'm away to come off a fixed rate mortgage, 1.23%. I think my, payments, oh, take, my, my monthly payments are waiting to go up by about 600 quid a month. Oh, wow. I'm like, oh. And right. it's like, I am fortunate that I'm in a position where, I mean, yeah, that, that's 
money that could be going towards holidays or a car or, or something else. And I suppose I'm quite fortunate that, that I can absorb that, but it's scary stuff. And, mm. and can I hopefully we'll, we'll start to see things just sort of stabilise soon. Fingers crossed. The, the, one, one of the, the the ideas behind interest that's going up so quickly means that actually they might come down quite quickly as well, which is the positive side of things. So you have sharp increase and then sharp decrease because it's it's kind of unsustainable for the Bank of England to keep it at a high level for quite a long time because you it's like back to the dentist analogy, kind of knocking out too many teeth in the process of trying to deal with the problem of inflation. So 2024, we should start to see interest rates come back down, but the likelihood of interest rates going back down to 0.25 again I know. In, the, in the next few decades, I think is so, so unlikely, but just not as high as where they are now. I would just say, before you, you get in touch with a question, you, you might want to take a look at our back catalogue because we've covered a lot of topics and we may have touched on what you're interested in. I'm John Ellis. Thank you to, for joining us on episode 150 of the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson. And thank you once again to Tom Stokes of Aviva Investors for being our guide today in Ask the Fund Manager. If you feel you need a helping hand with anything we've been discussing or anything else of a monetary matter, find Phil for Finance. Search Phil Anderson Financial Services online or join the Facebook group for the show. Search Personal Finance Community. That's Personal Finance Community on Facebook. Phil's on Twitter and LinkedIn too, or why not email Phil a question he can answer on a future show. His address is phil at philandersonfinancial.co.uk. That's phil at philandersonfinancial.co.uk. Send him your question and Phil could be answering it in an upcoming podcast. And please be assured we won't use your real name if that's what you prefer. Remember, if you find this useful, please rate and recommend us. And please follow us on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Then you'll get us every week with the info you want when you need it. You'll get all the links you need on Phil's social media. Good luck with your money. Phil's doing his best to help make that cash go further. We'll see you next time. And thanks for listening. Thanks very much, John. Thanks again for coming on, Tom. Mm-hmm.